suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today, we introduce Whining Weenie Wimps Part Eight. Shockingly so. I thought we would have been done with this subject by now, but we are not because we ought to be naming this subtitle to Whining Weenie Wimps Part 8 Submission because that is what the culture warriors, the word warriors want, that we submit to all their desires, all their demands. And it's very difficult, JS, to give this up, to just submit. So if you'll recall, we ended part seven of Whining Weenie Wimps by noting that Boulder had passed legislation outlawing the term pet ownership, the idea of pet ownership. From now on, all residents of Boulder owning any animal no longer own it. They are simply a guardian of that animal. And Every resident that is a guardian of an animal has assumed the responsibilities of guardianship under law. No longer shall any city councilor or resident or citizen of Boulder, Colorado, even reference the owning of a pet. That concept no longer prevails. It no longer is, exists at a, as a matter of law. All previous rules, regulations, licenses, laws are to be amended to be in conformity with the guardianship concept from this point forward. The official records of Boulder would be amended such that all prior concept of animal ownership be deleted from the books and invalidated as a matter of law. And from this day forward, culture warriors, they had proven the success that they have had in badgering. Well, wait a minute. I wonder, I wonder if the term badgering isn't demeaning to, well, badgers. I mean, despite their well-earned, well-deserved reputation for ferocity, um, maybe they're offended. Or animal culture warriors um, whom are triggered on behalf of the demeaned badgers. In any event, the city council, those boneless wonders, born uniquely without a backbone. Huh, serendipitously, not that different than that was born Gavin Newsom, the man whom I believe will be the next president of the United States. And they're going to outlaw, and they have outlawed all legal reference in Boulder to the concept of the relationship that once existed between a person and the animal they had purchased, whether it be at some A, pet store, off a farm, you know, C, from a puppy mill, or D, from whatever source they have come to 
quote, get that animal because we can't say the word owned. You purchased when you gave money for this animal. You purchased not the animal, but only the right to guardianship of that animal. And now that we got that clear, as soon as the, the animal activists, the animal ethicists, the word warriors, cultural warriors, social justice warriors, as soon as they notched this victory, they began the inevitable, inevitable march to ban the other associated terms with ownership that they deemed offensive and must be banned from use. Atrocities, I mean, atrocities such as taking your dog to obedience training sessions is just intolerable. It, it just it can't be imagined. From this point forward, obedience training shall never be referred to again as obedience training. Training of such here and after referred to as doggy manners. You're taking your dog to doggy manners school. And it's impermissible for you to issue commands to pets. No more of that nonsense. You are to provide all animals with cues. It is permitted, however, that these social justice warriors, these animal ethicists, word warrior types, they can issue you decease and desist orders as a human being and you are commanded to follow them they see they, these people see no irony in a situation in which they demand they command you to obey their rules but animals are not to be subjected to obedience commands they are to receive only cues i mean do you think this is weird i do and these are the same people, remember, who have, have had trouble making friends, except for those similarly situated, let's call them malcontents, whom favor talking to their pets rather than in participating in dialogue with other human beings. And they don't know why or quite how this has happened. How this has taken place. But, but let me tell you, I do. I get it. Hmm. A, you know, a definitive aspect of incompetency is the inability to see one's own incompetency. And sadly, I find that this is not fixable in a human being, in my opinion. Now, you give these, these people, people such as these, power. And, and you're going to find out very, very quickly four things about them. Number one, these people love power. They revel in it. Number two, they're going to exercise the authority to which they've been given. They, and three, they will make no bones about it. He who hath the hammer makes the rules. And finally, well, this would never happen to an animal. It's going to happen to you. You if you're not conforming and you're a human being, they will command you to obey. All this, all this sensitivity to words, expressions, terminology, and phrases 
is all part of a greater movement to have every desire and every grievance, whether it be real or imagined, whether it be reasonable or unreasonable, of any aggrieved party, any aggrieved party, whose claims to be aggrieved, aggrieved, oppressed, or offended, they are, they are to be recognized as worthy of recognition, all these complaints of being aggrieved, oppressed, or offended, and of such substance that they warrant societal response. And in fact, they require total submission. Such submission is owed all the offended, all the oppressed, and all are indeed victims. You know, a society that is compelled to act in such a manner cannot function smoothly. The only possible outcome of all this is discord, and we got plenty of it. One must simply yield to these people. And by by way of illustration, this idea of submission, I want to provide details of one particular situation, one particular event in which I was involved. And see if you can't see why this is disturbing. I mean, I would suggest to you that anecdotal evidence may be interesting, might be informative, uh, uh, but generally is not worthy of intense study and shouldn't be. But it, it's dispositive of nothing, really, and nor should it serve as the basis for law or regulation. Still, I want to offer you this one story, this one case as representative of something. And the story goes as follows. Now, years, ad- years ago, well, decades actually now, I was the CEO of a company that had operations all across the United States. And one day I received word that a woman in one of our operations in the United States uh, wanted to get on my calendar. And I knew this woman, uh, but not very well. Uh, she was very bright, articulate, she was experienced, and, and she was actually an attorney who worked very well with clients. And so she had all those you know, skills requisite for, for success. And, and I agreed to meet with her, despite the fact that she had informed my executive assistant that she'd rather not declare the reasons for requesting this private meeting with me. So I agreed to meet with her, and we met in my office while she was in town. And after a a few pleasantries, um, she got to the main point. She was feeling very, repeat, very, very uncomfortable around fellow offices, uh, fellow employees in the offices in which she was employed, to which she was assigned. And when I inquired as to the reasons why she felt you know, so uncomfortable in the office, she informed me that it was due to the fact that she was a lesbian. Now, given that I did not know she was a lesbian, and given the fact that at that time in the United States to have asked her on an employment application if she were a lesbian would have been in the in violation of the law. How, how would fellow employees have known she was a lesbian? Had, had she herself informed the other employees, her fellow employees, that she was a lesbian? No. She told me she hadn't told anybody in the office that she was a lesbian. 
And by the way, I would say not that she should have. I mean, why, why would or should anyone be in an office environment, a professional working environment, talking about their sexual orientation, their sexual preferences, peccadilloes in a business setting? In my opinion, it's, it's not appropriate under any circumstances. It's not something to be discussed at the office. Not then or not now, 20 years later. So, um, but still, this attorney, this, this woman, she claimed she could feel the discrimination. She could feel all the discrimination against her due to her sexual orientation. That was her conclusion. She sensed it. Hmm. Now, we talked about this matter for a, f- a fair amount of time. And, and I asked whether or not it would improve things if she would consider, I mean, beneficial, if she had her own time and in her own fashion, her own way, um, would let her associates know that she was, in fact, a lesbian. I mean, would, would this health help things? No, she said, no. This would not solve the problem, uh, and she was clear about that. It would not resolve the issue. Hmm. So th- this presented, at best, a, you know, a, a, a rather sizable conundrum for me and for her superiors because this, this professional attorney, this lesbian professional attorney, she felt discriminated against because she was a lesbian, though by her own admission, The company had never inquired of her as to her sexual orientation, sexual preference at the time of hiring, nor any time thereafter. And she claimed not to have informed any of her fellow work associates that she was indeed a lesbian. And and she had no personal interest, no desire to inform them now. She further agreed with me Uh, upon questioning, that no one in the workplace had ever overtly said a word about her sexual uh, uh, identity or orientation. So, so, So now what? So we as management, uh, you know, we were not going to announce to the staff anything about her sexual orientation, her private affairs. So this was a difficult proposition, to say the least. How do we deal with this? In a, in a dealing with a case of alleged discrimination based only on an employees' feelings, the sense that they've been discriminated against because of their orientation, of which no one knows. You know, ultimately, the conversation transitioned into a discussion of the potential that perhaps we might reconstruct her position, her job description in in ways that might offer her, say, new work, new work assignments that might redirect her energies, her attention, her 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 fine skills that that which you know which might help her realign herself with her fellow employees. But she was distinctly uninterested in pursuing any of the ideas or suggestions I put forward. Nothing would satisfy her. So she wound up returning to her professional duties in her office, but within uh, two months, um, she filed a complaint with the EEOC alleging that she was 
employed in a in a hostile workplace environment, and that a hostile workplace environment existed. The EEOC appointed an investigator and was assigned to look into her case. And ultimately, well, no wrongdoing on the part of the company or any employee was indicated. It was suggested by the EEOC caseworker that we consider just paying her to go away. Now, from a business standpoint, this is quite maddening. I got to tell you, it, it feels like extortion and blackmail. And it really is. But in America, in the 21st century, this is not that unusual a case. This happens all the time. It's a cost of doing business. You know, it's unproductive. It's counter to the best interest of the company. It's the, it, counter to the best interest of the business itself. And truthfully, to all the other employees. It's just an added cost. But there is, there is not much an employer can do given the attitudes that prevail in this country at this time. So our legal department uh, concluded, and it's not that I objected to it. I mean, the conclusion was it was financially prudent to be done with the affair. And it was suggested that we just offer her a one-year severance package if she would just drop her claim and go away. She took the money. She resigned, which really may well have been her objective ab initio, right from the beginning. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really hard to know for sure. Now, I, I have taken the time to mention this case as just one example of how difficult it is to satisfy, to please everybody all the time. You can't. People aren't reasonable, aren't rational. They aren't they aren't there to compromise. They want what they want. They demand what they demand. And by God, you need to give it to them. And, and it is clear that people can be quite unreasonable at times and, and assert claims of mistreatment and proffer demands that they want met. And they can claim that they've been offended, um, you know, made to feel uncomfortable alienated or unwelcome or their feelings hurt for any reason they feel like bringing forward. Are such claims justified? Maybe. But many times, no, they're not. Certainly not always. And to attempt to, to satisfy the demands of the multitude is a structural, institutional, uh, systemic impossibility. It just is. And yielding to this sense of hurt feelings of the, the, the woman in the above reference case, I mean, it cost us, it cost our company a fair amount of money, wasted time and energy. It diverted us um, from, the, from our design task of satisfying client demands and needs. And it just added to our expense base. And, you know, sitting here now, two decades removed from this situation, I still believe that the company itself and, and our employees in that field office, 70, by the way, 70% of them at that time were female. They had done nothing wrong, not a thing wrong. And I am, I am 
I am convinced 20 years later, nothing we might have done would have made this essentially very, this very talented, but very unhappy, miserable woman, any happy, any happier. She was just, she was simply a malcontent. She was who she was. And, and really, at the end of the day, it was neither our responsibility to assure her happiness, nor was it even within our power to order her fellow employees to make this woman's life less miserable. They were doing nothing wrong, and they had no affirmative obligation to try to make this woman happy. And I am of the opinion it was to her advantage to simply claim her status as a gay woman was the cause of her discontent. And in doing so, to leverage the status, her status as a lesbian to extract from the corporation, her employer, via form of legalized extortion, money to which she was not legally entitled. And then simply just move on to another job in which ostensibly she might find reward, whether it be a, you know, economic, intellectual, emotional, or any combination thereof, whatever. But she would, she would leave the company and find this new rewarding job, but only after having extracted from us one year's worth of pay. We could do nothing but submit. And with this said, we shall end part eight of this discussion of whining, weenie wimps. But this is not the end of the story. No, not, not by a long shot. And in our next episode, part nine of whining, weenie wimps, we will delve into the suggestion that, that we, and I'll explain who we is, we have an affirmative duty. An affirmative duty is laid upon us to make sure that members of the LGP, LGBTQIA plus community feel better about themselves. So say the wacky culture warriors. And where our only duty be, we submit. Hey, thanks for listening, and we will be back again soon with part nine of Whining Weenie Wimps. Hey, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Good day. See you later. Inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I've been Grain of sand on a beach, a blade of grass.
She 